welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Siegel. I'm a hematologist in Ottawa, Canada, and it is my pleasure to present to you today on anticoagulant-associated major bleeding, which is a significant problem. Um, and I'm going to address how we manage this in patients who are receiving direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs. I'm sure that the audience is well aware that bleeding complications limit oral anticoagulant use. And although we're fortunate now to have access to direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs, um, which have substantial benefits for patients, including improved rates of intracranial hemorrhage, major bleeding, compared to warfarin, we do see that there may be an increased risk of gastrointestinal bleeding um, dependent on the type of drug, but um, they have not been compared head to head. So that jury is still out on, on that aspect. Um, bleeding remains an important problem. So again, even in the era of DOACs, we're seeing major bleeding rates of around two to 4% per year, and an additional 10 to 12% of patients experience clinically relevant non-major bleeding. And of course, these rates vary by indication and patient population and comorbidities, but still the point here is that bleeding remains an important complication of anticoagulant use that our patients experience. This slide summarizes just how severe anticoagulant-related bleeding complications can be. And here we're showing the risk of death associated with different types of bleeding complications. On the left, you see hemorrhagic stroke, with, which is uh, associated with a 27-fold increase in the risk of death and compared to patients without that complication. Subdural bleeding, seven-fold increase in the risk of death. And also extracranial bleeding, perhaps surprising to some, is also associated with an increased risk of death of about five-fold. So this includes a site outside of the cranium. So it's not just intracranial bleeds that matter a lot to patients, other types of bleeds matter, uh, matter too. And here, this slide shows a bleed management framework, which summarizes some of the important uh, features of management, including prevention. And this really does start uh, with the initiation of oral anticoagulant uh, therapy in our patients. And of course, it's really important uh, to implement the principles of stewardship, you know, right patient, right drug for the right indication at the right time, um, and to manage that going forward. Um, unfortunately, some patients experience complications of bleeding while on anticoagulants, and the important piece here is to refer those patients for early supportive measures and interventions such as procedures or surgeries, which will ultimately definitively stop the bleeding. Of course, anticoagulants make bleeding worse, they don't cause bleeding themselves, and often a procedure is required uh, if it's available uh, to stop the bleeding. Reversal is indicated for severe bleeding complications. In the absence of the availability of uh, reversal agents, hemostatic therapies uh, may be also administered for uh, patients who are having bleeding complications. And then finally, once bleeding has resolved, uh, reassessing anticoagulants is extremely important. And then again, we're back to the prevention piece. Secondary prevention is really important, uh, including minimizing or modifying uh, risk factors for future bleeding complications. And so the first step of bleed management is really to assess the severity of ble the bleeding, because ultimately this is what guides uh, management going forward. On the left hand of this slide, you can see non-major bleeding complications, and these would be things like self-limited um, epistaxis or, for example, hemor self-limited hemorrhoidal bleeding, for which anticoagulants may be continued. In the era of DOACs, remember, these drugs are much easier to start and stop. They have short half-lives, and they also have a short uh, time to peak concentration. So um, these actually can be, you know, start and stop. Therefore, it's much easier to continue anticoagulants in the DOAC era. 
local measures can be helpful. Um, monitoring can be important, particularly if a patient has recurrent non-major bleeding complications. And therefore, you know, really just reviewing the drug that they're receiving. Um, are they re taking it correctly? Um, are there any new medications that could be interfering? And here we have some examples of co-medications and then just making sure basic blood work is stable. As we progress onto the right-hand side, you can see, you know, major bleeding that is either um, that may or may not be life, limb, or organ threatening. And certainly general measures with compression and volume replacement are important. Definitive interventions are also here. And then finally, reversal or hemostatic therapies, and we'll get into this a bit more in the subsequent slides, will be appropriate. Of course, for major bleeding complications at this point, we are interrupting oral anticoagulant therapy um, because of the severe outcomes that can occur with ongoing bleeding complications. We want to optimize hemostasis for the patient who is having an acute bleed. Uh, there is a lot of discussion these days about the use of tranexamic acid in various populations, and it has been shown to decrease bleeding in many patient populations. We do not have robust data in anticoagulated patients, um, and a recent trial has shown that there may be harm with a lack of benefit in GI bleeding. So these treatments uh, can be used, but uh, should be used uh, appropriately uh, for the right patients. So for patients who have severe or life-threatening bleeds, reversal or hemostatic agents are indicated, but these drugs need to be used judiciously, which means using them for the right patient at the right time. And that starts with an assessment of whether the DOAC is present in a, quote, significant quantity, and that can be because it's clinically suspected based on the time they last took their dose and uh, the known clearance of the drug or half-life in conjunction with the patient's uh, hepatic and renal function. or um, because they have had a measurement of the quant a quantitative measurement of the drug, um, and that drug level is consistent with a clinically significant level. There is some uh, controversy about this because, of course, we don't have an established threshold for a clinically relevant chemostatic effect or anticoagulant effect. However, um, if a patient has taken their DOAC within the previous 24 hours, it's likely that they have a significant uh, circulating DOAC and that a reversal or hemostatic agent could be administered. So patients for whom this would be appropriate are those with severe life-threatening bleeding, a critical organ bleeding, such as brain or spinal cord, ongoing bleeding despite measures to control it, perhaps a less common indication, bleeding with an expected long delay in achieving hemostasis also, you know, less common, or for an urgent surgery that cannot be done safely on anticoagulants. So it's important to then, again, re reflect on whether or not the DOAC is likely to be present in significant quantity. And the point of this slide is really just to show how limited, um, how the limited utility of most of our tests are for assessing the presence of DOAC. So routine coagulation tests that we're all familiar with are poorly sensitive and poorly specific for these drugs. You can see here for rivaroxaban, uh, rivaroxaban uh, may increase the PT the INR or prolong the PT, but not always, and this is dependent on the type of assay that's available. Similarly, dabigatran may prolong the APTT, but this is also dependent on the assay. Uh, more reliable are things like the dilute thrombin time or eccrine clotting time to measure dabigatran or calibrated anti-10A assays, which provide a quantitative measure of the factor 10A inhibitor anticoagulants. But again, you know, in, in routine clinical practice, I think the important point is here, we're assessing patients based on their clinical presentation. So if they have a severe bleed, uh, if, they, if there is reason to believe that the DOAC is present in significant quantity, again, either it's because we know when they took their last dose and we know what the half-life of the drug is, so usually around um, 12 hours, we can say reasonably for certain that there is drug left in their system. And in reality, if a patient was has taken their DOAC within the previous 24 hours, it's likely that they have a clinically significant level circulating. 
So if these are present, of course, and these criteria are fulfilled, then reversal is uh, warranted. So there are two agents which reverse DOAC effect. Idarucizumab is a monoclonal antibody uh, against abigatran, and it's indicated for urgent surgery or procedures or life-threatening or uncontrolled bleeding in patients receiving dabigatran. And dexanet alpha is a human recombinant factor 10A variant molecule, which is used to reverse the anticoagulant effect of factor 10A inhibitor anticoagulants. And it's indicated for the reversal of apixaban or rivaroxaban for life-threatening or uncontrolled bleeding. And the dosing uh, is, as you can see here, five grams intravenously for idarucizumab, um, and that comes into 2.5 gram vials. And then for endexanet, the dosing is dependent on the type of factor 10A inhibitor that was taken and the timing of the last dose. So again, we mentioned uh, treatments for major bleeding for factor 10A inhibitors. Um, we have endexanet alpha, if it's available, dosed according to the type of factor 10A inhibitor and the last ingestion. Um, in the absence of a specific reversal agent, if a reversal agent is, um, is required, um, four-factor PCC can be given. Um, some sources or experts recommend a fixed dose of 2,000 units or a, a weight-based dose of 25 to 50 units per kilogram, although there's uncertainty about the ideal dose uh, in this setting. Um, and it's also uncertain about whether or not there should be a maximum dose administered uh, as a single dose. Um, other you know, treatments might be activated charcoal if given, if taken within the last two hours, although practically speaking, this is you know, pretty rarely done. Guidelines uh, for intracranial hemorrhage, uh, again, have a similar approach for if we focus here on the factor 10A inhibitors uh, in this uh, um, uh, box here in the middle, you can, and for dabigatran as well, um, you can see that it's important to determine when the last dose was taken. Again, activated charcoal, if it was within the last two hours, also a challenge, not usually the case. Um, and if the specific reversal agent is available, so in this case, either idarucizumab for dabigatran or indexinet alpha uh, for uh, factor 10 inhibitors, then those specific reversal agents um, are recommended. In the absence of specific reversal agents, we're looking at coagulation factor replacement with either uh, four-factor PCC um, for factor 10A inhibitors um, or perhaps even activated PCC for idarucizumab. Uncertainty, again, about uh, the types of uh, the doses that are available for those. These guidelines discuss the timing of resumption of anticoagulation after a bleed. Again, there's a lot of uncertainty because of really limited data in this space. Um, the, the data here are focused on patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation who have spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Um, and really the decision around resuming anticoagulation depends on a balance of the you know, expected or per benefits versus the harms. Um, and so if the balance is thought to a favor treatment, um, as opposed to um, withholding treatment, then that can be considered. But you know, again, low quality evidence here. Um, in patients with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage, in whom the decision is made to restart, here they're discussing seven to eight weeks after intracranial hemorrhage. Now, again, I think this is there's a, you know really not very high quality evidence uh, indicating that that is the case. Of course, without anticoagulation, patients are at risk of stroke and systemic embolism. So this is a discussion that really needs to happen uh, with uh, neurologists and perhaps neurosurgeons and uh, perhaps hematologists as well. And then finally, you know, patients who are deemed too high risk for anticoagulation, we may consider approaches like left atrial appendage occlusion uh, in order to reduce the risk of thromboembolic events. 
So this slide summarizes the just this approach. I think for any type of bleeding complication, it's important to uh, first assess whether or not bleeding has stopped. That's really key. Um, you know, one of the, the rules or cardinal rules of anticoagulation and thrombosis medicine is that you can't anticoagulate a bleeding patient. Or I always say, you know, it's important to treat the problem that's in front of you. Um, you know, managing a patient for a theoretical risk of thrombosis when they're actually having a life-threatening bleeding is not sensible. Um, and so there, that, of course, requires, you know, rapid follow-up, um, but ultimately uh, it's important to withhold anticoagulation if that is what's right to do for the patient's current clinical status. It's also important to assess whether they still need an anticoagulant. And if they do, then to assess the thrombotic risk and the bleeding risk, sometimes very challenging, and so really should be done in a multidisciplinary framework and including patients and their caregivers. Patients and their families, you know, are um, keen to be involved in these types of decisions. Ultimately, they are challenging and there's limited evidence about um, how to manage. So they should really be engaged. And then of course, if we're resuming anticoagulants, this should really be done with a stewardship mindset, um, making sure that everything is optimized uh, for safety. So I'll just end with this slide by saying that um, I hope that I've convinced you that anticoagulant-related bleeding remains an important problem for our patients, uh, even uh, in the era of DOACs, that prevention is the first step, that you know, early supportive measures and interventions should be sought to reduce bleeding at the site. Um, reversal, of course, is important uh, for severe bleeds. Hemostatic therapies can also be used if reversal agents are unavailable. And then finally, uh, anticoagulation needs to be reassessed after bleeding is resolved um, and a plan in place uh, to do that. I'll end there and thank you for your attention. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME, LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.